These people are dying like on the streets all over. I was in Kensington, Philadelphia uh, about three months ago and I did video footage. I'll share it with yeah. you. You won't believe it. It was like a scene that I'd never seen in my entire career. And I've been doing this a long time. People laying on the ground, putting needles in their legs and their arms and their, underneath their arms and their feet. They were desperately trying to get this high. So anyway, it's changing all the time. We got to stay on top of it, especially with the synthetic drugs. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars podcast. This is the number one podcast of the Americas, the only bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. Uh, I say we're the number one podcast, obviously not because of me, but because of our guests. And today we have a very special guest and someone that if you guys are paying attention to the podcast, you already know him because he was on our very first inaugural episode, really like about eight months ago now called Weaponized Drug Trafficking. We'll put a link to that here in the description. Derek Maltz, good to see you. How's everything going? How's life? Thank you for having me back on this very important topic. Everything mm -hmm. is good. Can't complain, except the world is going crazy. And it feels like the world gets crazier like every month. Every month there's some, like we met, we had the podcast before Ukraine and then Ukraine popped up and that was like the conversation forever. And then now we're talking about uh, the border again, which I, and not, you know, it's all, this what people don't get, I think it's all connected at the end of the day because our adversaries are going to exploit our vulnerabilities and probably there's no greater vulnerability than what's happening on the U.S. southern border. Uh, and I think that basically you uh, almost single-handedly has been changing the narrative because like the media doesn't really want to talk about it or sometimes wants to talk about it. You're on the media all the time. You see them on the, all the networks. But I felt like you've been basically educating about what's going on with fentanyl, the drug crisis, to the point that you're on Dr. Phil nowadays. Yeah, I see you on the major networks. Yeah, Dr. Phil was a really important uh, advocate here uh, for the families. And that's kind of why I'm doing it, is to get the awareness out there in America so we could save lives. Unfortunately, it's a political topic because of the border and because of China, and it's not getting the attention, and the public's not learning. So as an example, just this weekend... I did a story on Fox News regarding xylazine, right? Okay. It's it's a flesh eating, uh, you know, what is it? It's a it's a horse tranquilizer. It's a it's a pharmaceutical drug that's getting mixed inside of fentanyl on mm. the streets. It's killing people all over. There's a story out of Michigan, Delaware, Vermont. Wow. It's all over the place, Maryland, and it's actually killing people. So they're mixing a horse tranquilizer with fentanyl. Yeah. Xylazine, I can't even pronounce it sometimes, but it's basically a legitimate pharmaceutical drug used by veterinarians and it's getting put in the fentanyl or even cocaine and making what yeah, they call speedballs, yeah, yeah, you know? That, yeah. But unfortunately, these people are dying like on the streets all over. I was in Kensington, Philadelphia uh, about three months ago and I did video footage. I'll share it with yeah, you. You yeah. won't believe it. It was like a scene that I'd never seen in my entire career and I've been doing this a long time. People laying on the ground, putting needles in their legs and their arms and their, underneath their arms and their feet. They were desperately trying to get this high. So anyway, it's changing all the time. We got to stay on top of it, especially with the synthetic drugs. Well, that's, I mean, you made a point last time when we were talking uh, in the last podcast, the one that we have weaponized drug trafficking, and it stuck with me ever since you said it. You said, this isn't uh, drug overdoses, because that's the terminology that we use in terms of reporting government, uh, uh, how they, the statistics, how they measure it. But this is different because it's not like a habitual thing. It's not like an addiction. Sometimes in some cases, the first time you ever took it 
and it could kill you because fentanyl is that deadly, especially now when you start lacing it or you start mixing it with all these other synthetic uh, compounds or cocaine or other things like that. And that stuck with me. Like you said, this is not fentanyl overdose. This is fentanyl poisoning. Right. So we've helped change the narrative. Uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot of, you know, commentary like mass poisonings, yeah. mass, you know, like poisonings instead of uh, overdoses. So as an example, like the DEA has their one pill can kill strategy now, okay. and they put out and never even changed it over to mass poisonings. It's no longer overdoses because like these 13 year old kids that are going online and ordering one pill, like they think they're getting Xanax, they think they're getting Adderall, maybe oxycodone, and they're dying. Then they're, they're not buying these pills yeah. to die. They think they're going to feel better. They're they're much under anxiety now and like depression. depression. Yeah. And so it, it's not an overdose. And, and, and the drug cartels are now coating these, right, with colors and stuff like that to make yeah. them seem like they're like, uh, like, like chewables or something like that. Well, right now there's a big movement like the Sinaloa cartel, Chapo's kids, as you know very well, yeah. they're out there and they're exploiting like, for example, Nogales, the, mm. the port mm -hmm. in Arizona. Mm -hmm. That's a stronghold for them. So they're bombarding the entire country with these pills and they color them like in rainbow colors or bright colors. The administrator of DEA just put out in August a, you know, a warning to the public and to the police that these things are everywhere. As an example, if you look in August, early August, you know, CBP, they seized literally millions. I think they're up to four or five million of these pills, these fake pills. And then when you look at DEA statistics, 40% of the pills that they're analyzing have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. So if CBP seizes 4 million pills, do the math, 40% of 4 million, okay? And now we're seeing stuff like, for example, we saw recently in Phoenix, the PD seized a million pills. The DEA in Los Angeles seized a million pills in July. The New Mexico FBI, DEA, and law enforcement community seized a million pills. Historic seizures. But Joe, you know what that tells me from doing this a long time? If they're making these kind of seizures, what the hell's getting into the country? We only mm -hmm. seize about 10% yeah. if we're lucky. Yeah, that's it, what we know about. Right? That's what we know about. Yeah. It's like the gotaways, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a million gotaways over the last two years. Yeah, yeah. That's what they have seen. There could be two or three million gotaways, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know what's getting into this country. The same thing with the drugs. But remember, even on the border last year, CBP seized over 11,000 pounds of fentanyl. Wow. And DEA seized 20,400,000 pills. Is that a pills. record? Yeah, this is mm -hmm. all-time records. Mm -hmm. DEA seized 20,400,000 pills last year, plus 15,000 pounds of fentanyl. That's enough fentanyl to kill every American. So this is a poison. It's being made in these cartel labs in Mexico, controlled by the cartels, Sinaloa and Alisco cartel. We all, You know that yeah, very yeah, well, yeah. okay? But unfortunately, the public's not getting warned. They don't understand it. It's starting to come out a little bit more now because of the midterms. Yeah. So people yeah. are now using it as a political talking point as opposed to caring about saving lives. Yeah, that's a good point. We're going to get into it. So what, what I want to do today, Derek, uh, is I want our audience to get to know you a little bit because you have a tremendous career. I mean, this is really one of those careers that, you know, you write books about and maybe you will write a book at some point. I have a book, 350 pages underneath my desk, but I just haven't <laughs> pushed haven't it. Time to, yeah. I haven't pushed it. But it was published already. No, it's not published. Okay, okay. I just wrote it and I did it for my family so they could see what's gone on over the last oh, we gotta get that you know, out there. We 50 years. But uh, before you do that, so if you're new to our podcast, be sure to subscribe to our channel, uh, like the video, uh, and hit the bell icon. That helps with the algorithm and be able to share. We're going to share Derek's stuff too at the end because he was telling me before we started this that you only had like 500 subscribers. 
We got to, on YouTube? On YouTube, yeah. We got to get those numbers up. So everyone, not just like, we're going to put uh, his YouTube channel in the show description. Be sure you subscribe to Derek's channel as well. He uploads all the content of his interviews in the media, his presentations, his speeches, his testimonies before Congress. So be sure to like, uh, subscribe on his channel as well. And I'll actually follow him on social media. We'll plug that again at the end. But let's take this to the beginning. Derek, you're from New York, right? Yes, sir. Okay, right there. I mean, with this accent, I'm not from Alabama, I right? was like, you know, he's either New York or he's Kentucky. So it's one of the two. So I took, I took a guess. Yes. But, uh, okay, so what I got here in your bio is you joined the DEA, in, or I'm going to say the DEA. It says your Long Island District Office. Was that your first? Yeah, that was the DEA 1986. Okay, so take us to that. What made you join the DEA? I know your father. Yeah, so was I was a major at Syracuse University in accounting. Oh, you're an I accountant. Had, okay. I had no, like, desire to go into law enforcement. My father was in the DEA for 30 years. He was the chief of the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force, the largest and oldest task force, drug task force in America. So he pushed me into this field. Back in those days, you could do that kind of stuff in the government, right? You yeah. could pull some strings, as they yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was just fortunate that he helped me to get onto this path. And I had 28 years uh, in the DEA. I loved it. But you, did you do it because your father asked you to do it? Or did you- Pretty do much, yeah. yeah. He, well, it wasn't even that he asked me. He pushed me into this. He filled, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Out, he filled out my application. Oh, did you really? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, hey, I got an interview set up for you. So he sent one of the agents from DEA New York to pick me up at the airport in New Jersey, drove me to my interview. I had no idea what I was doing. And as a matter of but fact- like, Did you say like, dad, uh, do I get a vote in this or anything like that? Well, my father was like just looking out for my best interest. Yeah, it was in my DNA. Remember, this is what a lot of people don't know. When I was nine years old, I went to the hospital. My father's partner was shot in the back in a drug ripoff in Manhattan, okay. Tom Devine. Okay. He sat in a rehab hospital in New Jersey for about nine years, and he later died because he had a bullet in his back. So that was my first exposure, mm -hmm. like with my father. But when I was 13 years old, the old man would take me on the street doing surveillance. Oh, wow. And it's a famous story. I was oh, out in Hempstead, Long Island, and we were sitting on a place all day long. He was waiting to find this, this African-American fugitive because he used to work a lot on heroin in New York City. And we were sitting there for hours. It was born. I was in the backseat of the car with my friend. Long story short, a lady came home. She went into the house. She came out with kids, gets into an old Cadillac. We followed her to Hempstead. She dropped the kids off at the movie theater. She went to Far Rockaway down by the beach. Really not a great area, by the way. And my old man sends me and my buddy out to follow her to see if we could put her in an apartment oh, wow. in the building. We oh. went to the elevator with her. We came back out. And my father's call sign on the radio was 701. Yeah. On that day, I was 701 and a half. <laughs> and I put it out like what apartment she was 701. in. 701.5. So yeah. So so bottom line is, I it was my destiny, it's right? It's your DNA. It's in your DNA. It's in my at that DNA. Point. Yeah, and yeah. so it just happened. And I'm thankful for it happening because it so, was great. So you go in, uh, you go in into the field office. Is that right? Well, eventually I got promoted into the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force where my father used to be the supervisor Okay, and you for become, 11 years. And you become an ASAC around 2000, right? No, no. I first was the supervisor in New York. Then I went to Washington as Special Operations Division, came okay. back up, became an assistant special agent in charge. Okay, okay, okay. Then I got promoted to my father's job. And then after that, I went down and got my job at the Special so you Operations. you rose the ranks. Yeah, you yeah. You basically rose yeah. the ranks of the DEA. Yes. And so you, you left the DEA in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Here. And you left as the head of the SOD, Special Operations right. Division, which is here in Virginia. Right. Uh, and now this uh, division, why I think it's, it's, it's particularly important, and especially what we're going to talk about today, is because you guys created, like, I think maybe the first, like, kind of narco-terrorism fusion center. That's which right. wasn't just uh, drug enforcement. It was looking at terrorism. You had DOD guys coming. Right. You had Treasury guys coming. 
Talk to us about that. Did, okay. you, did you create that or was that something there? So, so I'll tell you what happened. So when I got there in 2005, obviously I had some amazing predecessors. Joe Keefe, Richie Fiano, Mike Horn. These guys were awesome. So they built up a strong foundation. When I got there after 9-11, of course, the whole country was focused in on preventing another 9-11. These guys had the vision. They knew that they needed a group at the Special Operations Division that could kind of help coordinate this stuff. So they got an MOU signed by the FBI director, DEA administrator, attorney general to form what they called in 2002, the Special Coordination Unit. That unit was created to make sure that the DEA worldwide was pushing the information they had on potential terrorism over to the FBI and the counterterrorism folks mm. in DOD and Intel community. Well, what happened was I got there in 2005, so I kind of inherited this thing. Okay, okay, okay. But it actually grew so quickly, and we had so many connections between the drug cases and the terrorists. We had to create a formal center called the Counter Narco Terrorism Operations Center. In 2007, we formed this section, okay. and then it kind of boomed. When I got to SOD, there were nine agencies. When I left, there were 30. Wow. And we had the Brits, the Canadians, the Australians, and I brought in in 2011 the NYPD because of the counterterrorism drug trafficking nexus. No, and so, so this is kind of like a post 9 11 move. Right. Because they say, okay, we're going to look at terrorist networks worldwide. We find you guys know you find out that uh, basically drugs is financing a lot of these movements around the world, extremist groups. But uh, you start to create this, and so what was the biggest like challenge that you had at the time? What was what was I mean? Because you know we all we're in Washington, right? In Washington, everyone has uh, kind of a territorial uh, entities, and I don't if I don't remember right, the DA. Uh, already was DA already in the intelligence community? Yeah, right after 9-11, they right? got in. But the biggest challenge was, like you just said, the territorial. Like, people think you can investigate terrorists in a cocoon. There's no such thing anymore because the terrorists are getting a lot of money from criminal activity. So if you're not properly coordinating with the criminal investigators, you're going to miss something. Yeah. And, and as you know, the 9-11 Commission talked about how there was a breakdown in intelligence sharing and these these kind of cases. So the leaders at the time, my administrator, Karen Tandy, my chief of operations, Mike Braun, they wanted to do whatever we could do in the DEA to support the counterterrorism priority mission for the Department of Justice. So when I got in there, this was a big responsibility. But remember, in 2003, my brother died in Afghanistan. Yeah, of course. His helicopter crashed along with five others. Uh, my brother and five others died. And that was an eye-opener to me. So I wasn't going to allow this interagency nonsense go on. Was that the Taliban or Al-Qaeda? It was right in the middle of Afghanistan. They were on a secret mission, and the helicopter went down. Air Force Power Rescue. Air Force Power Rescue. And bottom line is, is that when I got back, I was fired up because I was sick and tired of this interagency nonsense. So before 9-11, I watched firsthand all the interagency lack of sharing and stuff like that. Now I came back in a position, which I believe— it sounds corny that God put no, me there I, for a reason, and it helped me yeah. build up this program, and that's why we had so really good relations. Your brother died in 2003? Yes, 2003. Or right at the beginning of the war then. Yeah, right yeah. in the beginning. And then you go into SOD in 2005. Right. Yeah, so this kind of lines you up for so that. So I was fired up, yeah. and I wasn't going to tolerate it. We created a badgeless environment, and we all worked together to try to make the maximum impact for the country. And if it was a terrorism case, we didn't try to run with the terrorism case. We shared everything with the FBI and the CIA and the DOD, and we built really good relations. Actually, one of my biggest partners was Admiral McRaven. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay, from yeah. SOCOM. SOCOM, yeah. And, you know, 
Admiral Stavridis from Southcom, yeah. they became really big advocates of SOD and they were very supportive. And that's how we were able to grow the operation because we started getting DOD resources. So I know what I was going to ask you because you guys had a lot of successes. Uh, and I remember this. I remember got a lot of successes and there was like this hard stop. Like it's almost like you're a victim. You're almost like a victim of your own success in many respects because the reputation started growing. We started hearing about the DEA more in terms of counterterrorism operations. We started seeing high-profile arrests. So you, you mentioned Venezuela. That's very important to our audience. They do a lot of work. I, we do a lot of work at SFS on Venezuela, but our audience pays special attention to Venezuela. I want to talk about it because it's something that's happened very recently, right? Um, the, the They're called colloquially in Venezuela the narco sobrinos, which means the the uh, what is it? The nephews, the the drug nephews, the narco nephews, and this was a case that made a huge impact because uh, for many time, for many years, the Venezuelans were telling most of their U.S. counterparts that the Maduro regime is heavily embedded, like completely synchronized with narcotic trafficking and all the major cartels from Colombia to Mexico and, and in between. And they were saying it's not just, you know, the, the regime in terms of like their, their, their military or the police. It's actually the family themselves. They used to call it the Maduro crime family. And the operation, I think it was in Haiti that they arrested these two nephews because they were shipping, I don't remember how much uh, cocaine, but it was a shipment of cocaine. And it was actually designed, from what I hear, you can correct me if I'm wrong, to capture a, a more high profile target, a member of the regime that's a little bit higher ranks. But that person didn't show up and they got um, the two nephews. And that turned out to be a tremendous amount of leverage, honestly, because when we did the max pressure campaign against the Maduro regime, the one thing he wanted was his nephews. And what's happened recently, and it's happened just, you know, depending on when this comes out, but it's happened just recently in terms of what, when we're recording today, was the Biden administration uh, did a prisoner swap. And, and what I said, I said, this is a very dangerous precedent because they uh, swapped two people that already went through the judicial system in the United States. They got arrested uh, by the DEA. They got uh, uh, in, uh, tried at the, I think it was Eastern, Southern Eastern District in New York. There was a grand jury. There was, they had a defense. They had a defense attorney. It was a trial. And then they got convicted because the evidence was clear and abundant. Uh, they were serving a sentence. And now they swapped them for seven individuals in Venezuela that were never convicted of any crimes. They didn't go before any due process. They didn't have any defense attorney. I mean, this is Venezuela, not a, not a real beacon for ju justice and judicial systems. And so they took seven Americans that never committed a crime that were pretty much hostages and they swapped them for people that were already convicted in our criminal system. And I said, that's a very dangerous precedent because how many people do we have in our criminal, in our jails right now that are from other countries, very high profile people that have already been locked up. And if we're going to swap them for Americans that have been held hostage in, in authoritarian countries, that means Americans are now at risk. Any country can then swap you up because you're political leverage. From your experience, from what you've done in the DEA, and I don't know if you're involved in these nephews' kids, or maybe one of your agents was probably involved. What does this mean to you? Like, how does this, how does this resonate with you? So, a couple of things. Number one, when I was at the Special Operations Division, we started a campaign, an initiative, to go after the crime family in Venezuela and all the corruption, not only in Venezuela, but in Central America and Mexico. And it's been several cases that have been done. And when I say done, I mean when these guys get extradited, convicted, and sentenced in a U.S. court. All right? Because the case isn't done until we get that done, right? It's not just the arrest. But anyway, I had some very talented agents, and they're still very talented, that have pursuing this. And they take it very serious because it's a huge national security threat. You got to remember, when I was at SOD, 
we call the Special Operations Division SOD. When I was there, I didn't know much about Venezuela other than what you know most people in the DEA knew. But I started seeing Venezuela emerge as a command and control hub for not only loads of cocaine coming to America, but going to the whole world. So the cartels in Colombia, they turned over a lot of their wholesale business into America to the Mexican cartels. But what they did was they took advantage of the amazing market around the world to sell cocaine. And they started using the FARC to transport the dope to Venezuela, to get the dope into the corruption, uh, corrupt government officials. And then they'd send airlines and, and boats and everything else around the world in ton quantities of cocaine. But what we started seeing is all these narco terrorists, like in West Africa, for example, starting to move all this cocaine up into Europe, over into Australia, and we started seeing this this unbelievable, um, you know, em, you know, emergence of something that I'd never seen before. Then we had 727s coming mm. into the Sahara Desert, crashing with 10 tons of cocaine where Al-Qaeda was involved. But the point is, is that what, guys like Waleed Makhled yeah. and General Carvajal, they were like some of the leadership that was working under that regime that were facilitating these major drug shipments around the world. That's right. Wally Monkley, you, you reminded me about that because we didn't get him. No, and that, that was another thing. I lived that. Yeah. Because what happened was we captured him in Colombia. He was arrested in Colombia. And at the time, the Colombian president made a decision to send him back to Venezuela. instead. Of, and the U.S. Congress was so pissed off about that. I used to go down there and get grilled. Like, why did we let that happen? But it was a political thing. To this day, I still don't understand it. Because Colombia has historically been our greatest partner, and we had great relations at the time. But unfortunately, people in our government were not advocating to get him back to America. So you start scratching your head wondering, why not? How long did it take to build a case on Wally Monkey? Oh, it took a long time. And then Carvajal was worse. Yeah, yeah. We locked him up in Aruba, Aruba. Yeah. On, a, on an arrest warrant pursuant to rule of law, because everything we did was pursuant to... I'm glad you brought up the whole... The, you know, the defense attorneys yeah. and the trial, because that's what we take a lot of pride in. And we we had this guy under arrest pursuant to our warrant, and then they send him back to uh, Venezuela. So we were not getting the proper support, honestly, during that time frame with the Obama administration, you know, advocating for us to get these guys back to America. I mean, we were just dying to see what they were going to tell us, because Wally Mocklet, as you know, yeah. was talking in the Absolutely. news. Yeah. Yeah, about yeah, a lot of in stuff. Columbia, yeah. Yeah, and he was broadcasting all his knowledge. So, of course, the Venezuelans didn't want him coming to America. Well, you know what's interesting about the Wally Monkley case? So we're covering this, and you know, we just released a paper. I don't know if you got it. I'm going to send it to you. It's called uh, Weaponized Drug Traffic, and we talk about how Venezuela has built this super yes, cartel, right? I saw it, yeah. yeah. So the next version of that is called Weaponized Migration, and Wally Monkley is kind of the glue between the two. because So he, gets, he, should, he should be sitting in a U.S. jail because he was supposed to get extradited the president of Colombia at the time, which is President Juan Manuel Santos, was doing a secret deal with the FARC at the time. And then he eventually became a public deal with the FARC and it yeah. did the peace deal. And he uh, was brokering that deal with the FARC that was inside Venezuela, which was the clients of uh, uh, Macled. So he basically says, if I, do, if I send this guy to the U.S., it's going to mess up my deal. So he's basically said, I'm just going to have to preserve this. I'm going to send this guy back to Venezuela. When he goes back to Venezuela, you would think he probably would get killed, right? Because he's basically just saying on all the, the major uh, shenanigans right. and drug trafficking that they were doing in the regime. No, he gets rewarded. They put him in prison, but he's got in that kind of four seasons <laughs> prison. And he's got now, he's got privileged women come visit him. Yeah. And he was involved in building 
uh, basically like an army inside the Venezuelan prisons, which is part of the ones that are coming up to the border today. Right. So he's the bridge between the migration and, and the narco traffic. And we had him. Yeah. We had him in our in our in our custody, basically in Colombia. And we allowed. And I I remember that time too because you're right. There were some congressmen that you know I think it was like Senator Rubio and some others yeah. and Senator Cruz that were making uh, uh you know noise about it. But in general, the American people didn't know at all. They didn't big. know, and they had no idea of the um, interconnectivity to Hezbollah yeah. in that region. And they didn't understand why he was such an important strategic person that we got back to America so we can learn more about what was going on down there. Because he actually had a lot of intel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and the Carvajal. Yeah, it's Carvajal was what? Director of intelligence, he right? The, and he was the head of military counterintelligence, uh, which is interesting because right. he defects from the regime. He defects from the Maduro regime. And I question that defection because uh, he defects from the Maduro regime and then joins the political party that's tied to, to the regime. And then eventually just defects the entire country, goes to the probably a Maduro-friendly country, which is Spain, which is one of the reasons we've had a hard time bringing him because the Spanish, I don't know if it's the Spanish government or the uh, net criminal network that he has in Spain, but for whatever happens, he's able to evade it consistently. He finally got imprisoned in Spain. He's in jail in Spain, but he's fighting that extradition yeah. tooth and nail. I'd be surprised if he gets back here for the same reasons. But that was also a time frame in my career, which just opened up my eyes to yeah. the extensive corruption in that region. Yeah. You know, it was just mind boggling. And they pursued even Maduro, as you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The DEA did an excellent job and pursued it, got the cooperators, as they did the president of Honduras. He's yeah, in the yeah, can yeah, in New York. Yeah, yeah. And his and his congressman brother, Tony Hernandez, he's serving like uh twenty-five years or more. Yeah, it's not political. It wasn't it wasn't like, you know, because he's a conservative or because he's a socialist. Like yeah. it was, you know, if you're involved in narco traffic, you're involved in narco traffic. And he was getting paid a lot of money from the Sinaloa cartel, yeah. working with Chapo Guzman, taking presidential campaign contributions for protection of the loads that are transferring Honduras and Central America every day. Now you got you guys built a lot of these cases. I remember that. Uh, some of them needed like more political support to be able to finalize those cases. Actually, I was going to ask you another question, but I want to ask you something that you're bringing to my attention, which is walk us through a little bit how difficult it is to build these cases in terms of time and resources and stuff, because it's not just like you, people hear it. They say, okay, Carvajal got away or Maclet got away. Okay, that's one criminal. But the time and effort that you guys put, yeah. the risks that you're risk, The informants, informants as well, like the professional informants that we use, their entire families were at risk. But I can tell you this now that, had it not been for our partners in DOD and other elements of the government, there's no chance we would have been able to make these cases based on DEA's budget. We were getting supplemental funding to be able to do these operations because they were global, very expensive to pay for the informant safety and all the operations that we did around the world. And I'll tell you, just backtracking a second because it's important. When I first got to SOD, they had a target named Monza Kassar. Oh, yeah. Monza Kassar was the alleged mastermind for the weapons yeah, arms yeah. on the Achille Laurel hijack in 1985 when they shot Leon Klinghoffer in the head in his wheelchair, pushed him off into the ocean because the PLF did a big, Abu Abbas did a big terrorist act. But the DEA, using our international law enforcement partners and our capabilities with the bilateral investigations team, wound up getting him, bringing him back to America convicting him. But then after that was known to the interagency, the White House contacted us to go ahead and do the case on Victor Boot. Seven months, six to seven months after we were asked about going after Victor Boot, the billionaire arms trafficker in Russia, we took him down. We took him out. He was in custody. In Africa, right? No, we got him was in Thailand. Thailand? Oh. And then we fought the extradition. It was all kinds of shenanigans going on. 
and we got him back and brought him to America where he's serving 25 years in prison. The point is, is that once we did these kind of cases, these high profile cases, along with all the Afghan cases, Haji Bashir Norzai, who's another one Biden just sent back to mm. Afghanistan on another deal. Mm. Okay. You got Haji Juma Khan, you have, you know, Baj, you know, Haji Baj Muhammad. There's so many of them. And once they started seeing this, this DEA was doing this under the radar, all of a sudden we started getting partners and we started getting funding and we started getting some more, you know, you know, support that we needed to make these cases. But every one of them were intense. Agents had to live in like really bad areas in West Africa, safe houses, you know, away from their family. It was very difficult times, but they did great work and it also proved the capabilities of DEA worldwide. And I think that for sure, and I think you also educated the rest of the intelligence community about this convergence between criminal organizations and terrorists because they didn't believe it for a long they time. They still don't believe it. They're still in denial. It's it, it's kind of surprising to hear that because the evidence is abundant at this point. And I always said, like, it's not necessarily that there's a, a, a ideological alignment among these groups. It's no. There's a logistical arrangement yeah. because they all work in the same Joe, criminal world. Not to mention, you need cash to operate. Yeah. And you can get a lot of cash, get involved in some drug trafficking. You don't even have to be a drug trafficker. You just pr provide some protection or you, you tax people for the property or whatever it may be. There's billions of dollars being made. And they got smart over time. And they realized, just like the AUC and FARC in Colombia, yeah, yeah, yeah. they weren't drug traffickers when they first started. They had ideologies, right? But they needed money. They needed money. They need money. And it comes down, it's all about the money, Joe. It, it is all about the money. And, and what happens is, like, you know, you think about, a financial operation, there's service providers, there's accountants, there's bookkeepers. And if you're a bookkeeper for the Sinaloa cartel, or maybe you're not even just the Sinaloa, you're for cartels, and then Hezbollah's like going into Mexico, who do you think they're going to call? You know, they're not going to go and bring a, an accountant from Lebanon that has to come all the way. No, they're going to get like a local guy. He's going to have a service. They're called service providers. So it was very common sense, but the intelligence community said, no, 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 this is not, this is not, this is not what, uh, fits the, the the general thinking or the group think that they had inside. But I thought your work, the, uh, well, the work of the DEA, helped educate the well, community. Well, one thing that I would say, and I'm not trying to be a jerk or trying to, you know, make fun of anybody, but you can't see this stuff looking in a computer. You have mm -hmm. to get out there in the field. You have to get with the informants. You have to get on the ground. You have to do your work on the, on the streets. And DEA has been known since it started to get out there and do the job on the streets, very hands-on. And it used to piss me off when we had these Intel community analysts that would come out of the woodwork and start doubting our assessments and causing all this added aggravation when in fact, they weren't even operating in these regions. They, mm. didn't, they, they didn't even work in these regions. Or they, speak the languages. They would speak the languages. Mm. They never talked to the people that were in the middle of these organizations. So anyway, it is what it is, but it's it's the same thing that goes on all over the place. So. Yeah, but I think it's worth mentioning just because you guys, did, I mean, that's pretty much part of, I think now, the legacy of what you guys created with the Narcoterrorism Center. And it maybe doesn't exist in the same form or maybe there's some pushback, but I, all I know is that from all the work that we've done, which a lot of it's now become public, is we we just learned so much from that time period because the Makled case, the Boot case, the Monster Kassar case, all those cases were just little uh, more bits of pieces of evidence that for analysts like us and me, you know, we're able to put this picture together and say, okay, now this is following a trend, a pattern. We're seeing this now. We're now understanding why the IEDs in the Middle East are so deadly, how they'll right. be able to finance that logistical operation, the supply chain. So, so Joe, remember yeah. this, like when you're in the DEA, you're a law enforcement agency, you have to prove this stuff in court. 
So you have to develop evidence and you have to have people to testify. So all of these cases, we had the evidence. It's not like we just made it up. This stuff was happening on a regular basis and it's still happening because terrorists are turning to criminal activity for the funding. It's that simple. Yeah. And so I want to pivot a little bit now to talk about what's going on today, uh, especially let's talk about Mexico. And I just had a little encounter myself with some cartels <laughs> down in Mexico. I'll tell that story, tell that story soon on, on a podcast. But uh, I want to talk to you about it because the Mexican cartels are getting more and more powerful. Uh, the Jalisco cartel in particular is don dominate Texas. I mean, just in ways that we haven't seen before. The Sinaloa cartel is still doing what the Sinaloa cartel has, has done. And the Gulf cartel, which doesn't get talked about a lot, but they're still out there in, in, in near the Gulf region of Mexico and border with Texas. So talk to us about what you think about the cartels. I mean, this is now post your career in the DEA because you left in 2014 and you've been working in the private sector. But you're still following this stuff very closely. Every day I, I work in this area because I support thousands of families around the country who have lost their loved ones to poisonous fentanyl. And it's very sad when you listen to the stories because many of these families have young kids as young as 13 that were not drug users. They started, you know, one pill, they die. You know, some of them, you know, they were experimental users, right? With pills that they thought they were getting Adderall or Xanax or Oxycodone and they're dying. But let me just go back and tell you what's even scarier about just the Mexican cartels. When I was at SOD in 2008, 2009, we started seeing the bombing of America with synthetic drugs being made in Wuhan-style labs. Yeah. K2 spice bath salts. Yeah, from China. From China. They were making it in China. They were coming in the mail, weren't they? At first, they yeah. were coming through the dark web. They were coming through the mail services. Yeah. And then what happened was we had major operations. You can check it out. Project Synergy. And we had Project Logjam. We went after this as a U.S. government. We went after these, these importers of this poisonous substance from China. So what happened was around 2012, out of nowhere, we started seeing people dying in America that were, were using heroin, but they had fentanyl in the heroin. We had no idea what it was. As the head of SOD, I didn't know fentanyl was in the streets. And we started seeing it all over America. And we started peeling back the onion. We started seeing... You know, the Mexican cartels and Dominican traffickers in America that were starting to get involved. And at first, they were putting it in heroin. They weren't mm -hmm. making the pills right yeah. away. But we started seeing the deaths. Joe, it was so bad in 2014, we briefed Eric Holder on an operation called Deadly Merchant. Because we saw, we saw this coming. It was something we've never seen in the history of DEA with so many deaths in America from this stuff called fentanyl. Let me back up because you need to notice. 2005, 2006... There were hundreds of deaths in the Midwest of America from fentanyl. And it was the Mexican cartels that set up a lab in Toluca, Mexico in like 2004, 2005. Hundreds of people died. No one knew what it was. And the DEA did a great job. They worked with the Mexicans and they shut down the lab. And then we didn't see any fentanyl. So that was really our first time that we saw the cartels involved. They realized- What, what, what time frame was 2005, 2006. They realized this was a tremendous business opportunity because it was synthetic. You can make it in labs. You didn't have to grow the poppy and or, you know go through the whole processing, yeah, yeah. right? It was just simpler. It was more uh, cost effective, and of course, you know, fentanyl was very addictive. Yeah. So they knew they can get the customers. So anyway, flash forward. Then over the years, we started seeing bulk quantities leaving China, going to Mexico. Then they stopped doing that after President Trump put a lot of pressure on them. They started sending the precursor chemicals. A lot of people, oh, that, a lot yeah. of people don't understand why or how would they have these contacts? 
because they were getting precursor chemicals for multi-tons of meth for many years from the Chinese brokers. Mm. Remember the case in Mexico City in 2007 when they seized $207 million in cash and the guy who was uh, running the place was a Chinese chemical broker? <laughs> it was all $100 denominations. So as the head of SOD, we saw this thing evolving, but we didn't really know what it was. But now you flash forward, the Mexicans start realizing the business opportunity. They have an unlimited amount of fentanyl they can produce in labs in Mexico. They have this porous border. They have the immigration crisis. And now the stuff is booming. That's why we're seizing so much of this fentanyl. That's why we have so many deaths. About 300 a day now are dying in America. But the sad part, people aren't even talking about it. It's like I'm sick of listening to myself tell the story because the government has the obligation to protect the people. And right now, innocent kids are dying all over America and they have no idea what's happening and the families are outraged. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Yeah. I've been doing this over the last four or five years. And by the way, we were calling for the uh, the cartels to be declared terrorists back yeah. five years ago. I remember that. So I want to ask you about that, but I'm going to ask you a question that I get quite a bit when yep. I talk about this. Yep. And, and I give these talks to, to the OD and stuff on, on, on the border, really. But, yep. you know, the drug, uh, the fentanyl crisis, the drug crisis is part of that talk. And the question I get often is with specifically the cartels in Mexico switching over to synthetic drugs, fentanyl specific, and their uh, connection with the Chinese criminals. But the question I get is if this is killing uh, so many people in the United States, in some ways, is that bad for business for the cartels because they're killing their customer base? Okay, great question. I get that all the time as well. The cartels are in the business to what? Make money, maximize the profits. Right now, they're making multi-billions of dollars, not only on the drug smuggling, the human smuggling, sex trafficking, migration, right? Okay, so not every customer is dying when they take fentanyl. As a matter of fact, people are getting very addicted to fentanyl, so they're buying more. We have customers out there that we've talked to and, and law enforcement's talked to. They're, they're so addicted to these pills, they're buying in so many more pills than you would ever imagine, okay? And you have a lot of first-time users now taking this stuff. So because it's so addictive and it's so cheap, their customer base is off the charts. Yeah, they're going to kill some of their customers, but that's the cost of doing business. They don't care. It's kind of like when they lose a ton of cocaine or a ton of meth or a ton of anything, or they, use, they lose $5 million. It's a write-off to their business enterprise. It's not, as, it's not as critical as people think. The Mexican cartels, in my opinion, do not want to kill their customers. It's just the cost of doing business. And, they don't, and they're, they're probably going to get better at mixing this crap. You know, it's not like they have FDA-approved chemists yeah. down there in the labs, right? They're probably going to get better to make a an ideal formula so people just get more and more addicted. addicted yeah. You know what I mean? This is relatively new, right? It's been going on with the pills yeah. like around 2015. Joe, I'll give you a quick example just to give you an idea. 2015, the DEA Phoenix, they see zero fake pills. 2021, 12 million pills. Mm. So it went from zero to 12 million. And then this year, it's even more than that. The point is, is that there's so much in population right now, the vast majority are not dying. Yeah. But remember, the DEA put out a statistic that 40% of these pills have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. So it's really scary. So yeah, it's a great question, but- no, But it makes sense what you're saying. It, 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 it makes sense because basically what you're saying is that the- basically the profit margins are so big because yes. the customer base gets so exponentially larger 
that yes, some of them are going to die. Yeah, but it doesn't affect the overall numbers. Right. But here's the thing, Joe. They also are very smart. These soft on crime policies and these hugs for thugs policies in Mexico, Mexico yeah. they take advantage of that too because they don't think there's anything going to happen to them. That's why I've been very vocal and I will continue to push this that we need to destroy those production labs in Mexico immediately. Yes, we want the Mexicans as partners. We want to work with them. But you know what? The corruption is so rampant now, we can't get them on board. They're not even working with the DEA now in Mexico, yeah, they, hardly. You heard they passed that law in yeah, 2020. of course. Where they basically said that anything that has to get done with external cooperation, that case, in this case, United States cooperation, has to get set up all the way to the highest command. No, they go through that bureaucratic place, yeah. SRA or whatever yeah, they yeah. call it. It's like the State Department. Yeah, uh, but you know why that started? Because the DEA arrested Cienfuegos. Cienfuegos, that's right, yeah. The He's former, the former Minister of Defense, right? Did you guys right? know about him back in the day? I didn't know about him, but yeah. of course, Hanero Garcia Luna, yeah. who was the director of public safety, yeah, yeah, yeah. we used to brief him. Yeah. He walked around the belt like, like he was the king. Yeah. And you know what? He's in jail <laughs> because of his work. And you, we can go down a list of all the corrupt officials. But the Cienfuegos to this day, I still don't understand why we sent them back there. I mean, the attorney general, Bill Barr, made that decision. That had that to was crazy. Been, that was crazy. There had to have been a yeah. good reason. I don't know what that could be. But- for what I heard, and I don't, you know, is that they, Mexico threatened to cut all cooperation. Whatever, yeah. or maybe he was a cooperator. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm speculating because yeah. usually, you know, maybe he was cooperating with some high level government officials. I don't know. But the thing is, is that after that happened, the Mexicans were like, oh my God, yeah. they're indicting the highest levels of our country. We need to stop this shit. And what they did was they created that new bureaucratic process. DEA was kind of like cut at the knees. Mm. And even to this day, talking to my buddies down there, they can't get anything done. But what's disgusting is the Mexican CMAR, they used to be like our greatest advocates mm. and greatest supporters, heroes down there, capturing Chapa Guzman. They're not even going out and hitting the labs anymore. Mm. And, and there's people in Mexico that have reported to me that some of these seizures that we're seeing in the news are just like propaganda. Like we don't even, we haven't even confirmed some of these lab seizures that they, they're claiming. After he visits with Joe Biden, next thing you know, he has uh, pictures out there in the news about this big fentanyl lab that they hit with the army down in Mexico. Mm. So bottom line is, is that it's really difficult right now to work in that environment. So if I was king for the day, I would have a high level meeting in Mexico with the Homeland Security, the AG, everyone involved, vice president would be there. And if they don't cooperate, we start using technology and we start eliminating these production labs because they're killing our kids at record levels. We cannot tolerate that. We've never yeah. seen this. And let, let, let me just say this last thing because no one has been able to refute this. In the history of this country, we've never seen a terrorist organization killing American citizens like we're seeing now from the cartels. So why are we allowing this to continue? Well, on that point, you said something uh, a minute ago about how... Five years ago, you guys were already advocating to designate the cartels as terrorist groups, right? That's that, right. So talk, talk us through a little bit. What authorities would that give the DEA or just maybe great question in general to be able to go after these guys above and beyond what can potentially be done today? So in, in just the common sense terms, if you declare an organization as terrorists, you're going to get much more focus on the threat. That's number one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number two you're going to get more authorities, more resources. There's other things that can be done by other agencies, not just law enforcement. This is not a law enforcement issue alone. We could sit here every day and seize millions of pills 
and cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin all throughout the country, unless we stop the source and we stop them because we destroy their labs, we're not going to have a chance. And I believe, based on my knowledge, that the U.S. government, we have a lot of good patriots out there. If they understand the magnitude of the threat and their leadership gives them the direction, they're going to do some really destructive work on those labs. And that's what we need. Plus, there's all kinds of authorities when it comes to, like, shutting down financing. Yeah. yeah. And Joe. Terror finance, yeah. Joe, there's another thing that people don't realize. And this scares the hell out of me. And I'm no expert in this area, but I know because I have a lot of sources on this. The Chinese are dominating the money laundering services in America for the cartels right now. And they're involved in very sophisticated money laundering that we've never seen ever. And this is relatively new, a few years. And what's happening is the Chinese organized criminals are going to Mexico City. They're operating as brokers. So when the cartels need money picked up, they send messages to their confidants in the United States and they get these young Chinese students mm. that are here in America on visas to go out in the streets of America and pick up millions of dollars from drug traffickers after they get their codes and everything like that. They use using encrypted applications for communication. And then the Chinese business guys that are receiving the money in America from these kids, they then are using their official, you know, their Chinese bank accounts and moving money in China. Wow. And, and then, they're, then they're creating these trade-based money laundering schemes. So as an example, I'm a business guy in Las Vegas. I just picked up 500 grand. I send 500 grand of money from my account in China to your account in China. You, Joe, have a Chinese business for consumer goods. You do an order for 500 grand of consumer goods, toys, sneakers, computers, right? And you send it to Mexico. But they sell it in Mexico for $4 million equivalent. So the bad guy gets his 500 grand back and then everyone makes money. The government is doing well because of the economy, right? And everybody's happy. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is the Chinese are buying property, real estate, land in America. Yeah, yeah. There was a recent report, $6 billion. Yeah, in the Midwest. Yeah, is, yeah. and a lot of it's cash transactions. It's because mm. cartels. I mean, we have cases where we have on wiretaps. That's actually really interesting because I'd heard, you know, I've heard about the Chinese buying property here in the mostly in the Midwest. I think it's acres of land. That yeah, acres by our military bases too. Yeah, and so the natural proclivity was to think that that's espionage related because they're doing that too. But now you're saying like this is actually they're creating territories so where the cartels can operate in more greater yes. unity. Yes, and and Joe, let's just look at it simple. For them to make the poisonous fentanyl in the chemical processing labs in Mexico. They need chemicals, which they're getting from China primarily, and they need the cash flow, yeah. okay? Yeah. So if, if, if China's role is so important right now for the production of this poison, but yet you're not even hearing about this on the news. And this money thing has got me really nervous because it's so sophisticated, so complex, it's very difficult to infiltrate, and that's why the cartels are able to turn around the drug load so quickly now because the money's there and the chemicals are there. They're becoming more efficient. More efficient. That's the yeah. word there. Thank you. No, and so what I'm, well, you got me thinking now is, be, and I'm going to add one more benefit to the terrorist designation because I've gone back and forth myself on how to think about it. I talked to people like you that have experience and I wanted, but I came to this final conclusion about two years ago, maybe that said, no, or maybe more. This is a good policy because for all the things you said, you know, the additional resources, the ability to pursue them. To be, but more than anything, I thought in terms of warfare, which is really what I study, it, it helps establish a new narrative 
that makes the cartels more radioactive and it delegitimizes them within their communities because the cartels need some level of legitimacy yeah. from communities to be able to have that level of impunity. Um, and cartels provide services, social services, exactly. they do you know things like that. And in many parts of Mexico, not just Mexico, but in many, many countries in the world and largely in Latin America, there's communities that don't think the cartels are bad because they don't look at drugs like exactly. that. Exactly. Thank you for but this. But terrorists... Right. See, they're ter- and that's not, they so, think Joe, horrible. Yeah. The way I look at it from my simple little New York mind, perception's reality. If I'm calling them a drug trafficking organization, average people down there are saying, ah, whatever, you know, we don't have a big drug problem here. People want to use drugs and they're making money, no big deal. Because they don't even understand the drugs are now poisonous and they're killing these kids. But if you're telling them that they're terrorists, the perception is reality. Yeah. It's a little bit different. So you're hundred percent right. Yeah, no, I, I, that's kind of what, one that made me think, you know, we got to, we got to move on this. Um, so to, to kind of move this to, towards current day, like where do you see the U S policy world now? Because you, I know that's not your, you don't, you're not a policy uh, wonk or anything like that, but you're dealing with policymakers all the time. Right. And, and as I said in the beginning of the podcast, I think you specifically have done a tremendous effort at changing the narrative so that people understand how serious and severe the fentanyl crisis is and understanding that this has a deadly effects on the social fabric of the United States. Do you see a, a pivot moment, like an inflection point where America just wakes up and says, you know what, this has got to be one, if not top three threats that we're facing in America today. We could worry about population uh, decline or climate change 10, 30, 40 years ago, but if we don't get rid of this today, this might destroy the entire uh, yeah. fabric of the country. Do you see that coming? Because yes. you're doing a lot of work on this. Yes, I see it coming, and I actually see momentum right now. Uh, for an example, we have a bipartisan resolution right now. Lauren Boebert from Colorado, Republican. Tim Ryan, Democrat from Ohio. Mm. Put forth a resolution to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Wow. This all came from the Families Against Fentanyl. Jim Rao is the founder, friend of mine. He's the CEO of Families Against Fentanyl. He lost his son in Ohio to fentanyl. And so they're pushing this forward, and now we have a lot of buy-in. As a matter of fact, 18 at least uh, attorney generals around America have signed the letter that they sent to Washington to support this initiative. And it's really good in my perspective because I've been saying all along this fentanyl crisis is not a red or a blue issue. It's a red, white, and blue issue. It's impacting all Americans, all economic classes, all races. You know, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter. Fentanyl is not discriminating. It's killing everyone. And so I think there is going to be movement because people are going to say, hey, this is something we can all agree on. The problem I see right now is this whole border situation. Yeah, yeah. Because because now you're going to have to bring light to the fact that- There's too much stuff coming in. It's We're being invaded, yeah. 150 countries, and all this fentanyl, and it's killing the kids. It's going to make the administration look bad, so that's the only thing I worry about. But more importantly, China's role behind the scenes is so political, they're our biggest national security threat. I mean, Chris Ray, the FBI director, recently said, this is our biggest concern. Yeah. It's not just the fentanyl. It's everything that they're doing. The intelligence, the counterintelligence, the cyber threat is amazing what these guys are doing to us. So anyway, I do see that turning around. But unfortunately, Joe, this is the other problem. The families that have lost their kids had to establish nonprofits all throughout America. They're out there every day trying to spread awareness. They're doing education in schools. They're doing podcasts. They're going to local media. They're trying to get on national media. They're doing congressional roundtables. They're producing educational material. They're doing PSAs. One of the most powerful PSAs that I've seen 
was done by one of the mothers. It's mm. incredible. Okay, here's the point. That's not their job. The government's job is to warn America about these emerging threats. And right now, that's not being done. They're still using talking points on the old opioid addiction days. And we still have massive opioid yeah. addiction. But the problem is... They, they, they cut off a lot of the ability for people to get the opioids for legitimate pain, right? Doctor won't prescribe it anymore. Mm. So then they got to go to the streets and they're buying this poison or they're going on the internet. What I'm going to say right now is like everyone needs to know that the illicit drug supply in America is so tainted and so deadly. If you are going to take cocaine, you're going to take meth, just remember there's a very good chance you're going to die because it's got fentanyl, not just yeah. the pills. Mm. It's in all of this stuff. And so the public needs to be warned by the, the highest levels of the government, and we need to get the message out to the kids. We don't even have education in the schools. They teach critical race theory in the schools, but they don't teach the kids about this poisonous fentanyl. Do you remember back, I think it was the 80s and stuff, it was Nancy Reagan. Yes, just, just say, say no. no to drugs. But you also had like these cartoons. Yeah. And, things. and they weren't like, I mean, obviously they weren't Very the impactful. But they were, they were like, they were shown in public schools. Yes. They, they were like, just like a constant campaign to well, remind. Well, Joe, you have like, okay, the ONDCP, the drug czar has an obligation to do this kind of stuff. I heard that Dr. Gupta is doing some PSAs now, and I haven't seen them. Give him the benefit of the doubt because he's new. But the other problem we have, Joe, and this is really pissing off the families, we can't get accurate and timely statistics from CDC. Really? When, when the COVID crisis was going on, every night you turn on the TV, what do you see? COVID, COVID cases, death, COVID, COVID deaths, blah, 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 blah. Because they politicize that, right? Now, kids are dying all over, and it's a, there's a backlog of... How many people have died from fentanyl? The yeah. autopsies are not consistent. The reporting's not consistent. So that's another thing. You know what someone was telling me? Like I was talking on Unacceptable. That. I was talking to a physician uh, that works in the ER near here. And he was telling me that they're seeing uh, contact deaths. Like you didn't take fentanyl? Like police officers. Right. That's, a very, that's a very political topic too because there's a mass amounts of people now that are actually refuting that. Doctors are coming out of the woodwork saying- Based on my knowledge, there's no way you can pass out from being exposed to fentanyl in the air. Now, again, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. I'm not challenging that, but I talk to the people out there, and Narcan is bringing these people back, so okay. they obviously have been impacted by uh, being exposed, yeah. these, some of these cops. There was that video that San Diego Sheriff put out that okay. became very controversial. But I heard, I heard this from yeah. New York physician. I know, I know. So me. there's a disconnect because people are making it political. It's just like on Saturday Night Live recently, they had a skit making fun of the rainbow fentanyl. I, I, I sent it out all over social media today. They're making fun of the DEA's position on rainbow fentanyl. And kids are dying every single day. Families are devastated. It's disgusting. You cannot do that in this day and age. You have to be more serious when it comes to death and destruction of our communities. Yeah, and let's end it on this because I want to just kind of end it. Derek, I think you've done a tremendous job. I think, you know, we want to support your work, but not just your work. We want to support the work of all the families that you're, you're sort of representing. You've been a voice for a lot of folks that don't have... The yeah, they call me Fox the voice News. of the voiceless. There you go. You're the voice of the voiceless. And in this country, because you showed me when we were coming in this, like pictures that you have of family, I guess it's the families of- Yeah, the, the lost voices of fentanyl. So I, I'm going to tell you quickly what happened. Mm -hmm. When I first started meeting all these families and hearing these horror stories, I started getting bombarded with all the pictures because I started a collage project. After 25 pages of collages, 90 kids on a slide, 
I couldn't take it anymore. It was too emotional. And honestly, I didn't do it the right way. I never asked the names, the ages. I never got the, the releases from the families because I was just trying to help spread awareness. I wasn't thinking it through. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, a sense of urgency. So one of the family members, Virginia Krieger, who's one of the co-founders and co-presidents of uh, Lost Voices of Fentanyl, decided to make it a much more professional project. So her and April Babcock, who started Lost Voices of Fentanyl, they started making these collages where they have the name and the kid, the age, mm. and beautiful pictures. It could be anyone's kid, anyone's grandkid, nephew, niece. It's not white. It's not black. It's everything. It's, you know, Asian. It's, it's, it's African-American. It's white. It's, it's every single possible person out there that you know in America. And it's not just addicts. Yeah, there's people on there that have had addiction and then they, they turn to fentanyl. Yeah, but there's also 13-year-old kids yeah. and 15-year-old kids that died in their bedrooms. Their parents found them blue in the face because they just ordered a pill on Snapchat and the drug dealer delivers the pill just like he's delivering pizza. So it's a disaster around the country and everyone's taking that position. It's not my kid. It's not going to happen to my kid. My kid's an athlete. My kid's going to Harvard. He's a good student. She's a good student. It's happening to everyone's kid and the horror stories. So anyway, we have this collage project. We just had the second annual rally down in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I heard about that. Uh, September fentanyl 17th. Awareness. Yeah, fentanyl awareness. How was it? It was outstanding. We got a lot of people, a lot of support. And But the parents are really angry. And the biggest thing, Joe that I get all the time is how come nobody's talking about this? That's, and that's something I can't even answer. So this, this is what I wanted to do. So basically what we're going to do is it, it, with your permission, yeah. if you send us those collages, yeah, hundred percent, we're going to put them first on all our social media website, but we're going to also put, we, we work within a network in Latin America of a, roughly about 40, 50 organizations. And we're going to send it to, for all of them to put it throughout yeah, Latin America. I appreciate that. Because yeah. I think it's important that the narrative doesn't just come from the United States because this is coming from external from the United States. And I think once we get a kind of like a, a synergy of people, because death, whether it happens in Colombia or it happens in the United States, it's going to happen in all the countries in the world because, you know, there's all like cocaine, right? There's well, you saw, you saw in New Zealand and in, in, in Australia, they're starting to get fentanyl shipments because they got operational labs in Canada too right now. The Chinese are up in Canada. So it's not just the southern border. It's coming in from Canada. And one last thing, I don't want to forget about this. You know what else is happening now, which is really super sad? We have millennial kids that don't want to go to work. They want to sit home and make a lot of money. They're buying the pill presses, bringing the pill presses to the houses in suburban America. They're buying the dyes. They're buying the powder. They're buying all the, you know, the what do you call it, the molds for the different drugs like you know, Adderall and Xanax and Percocet, they're making their own pills. Oh, wow. So do the math. If you do a, a 7,000 pills an hour on some of these machines and you can sell the pill for $20 a pill, 140,000 an hour times eight hour a day, they're making a killing. And they know the pills are very desirable out there for the younger population. So it's really, it's not- Homegrown drug dealers. And, and they're buying them online. They're going back yeah. on the dark web and they're buying this stuff. And, wow. and Joe, one other thing too on this topic, we're in another phase of the attack. We have now a new class of synthetic opioids called isonitazine, nitazine, etonitazine, pyro on the streets. These are synthetic opioids that are 10 or 20 times more powerful than fentanyl. And they're made in some of these same labs in China. I see- no- you got me on another question, actually. So one of the drugs that we're looking at, it hasn't hit, that I know, the United States that much or even uh, the Western Hemisphere, but it's t- totally abundant in the Middle East, uh, which is Captagon. 
right? Yeah, Captagon's been around a while. He's been around a while. Uh, what I'm hearing is that the World Cup is happening in Qatar in a matter of months, maybe less. Uh, and I'm hearing that the drug cartels as far as from Mexico to China and elsewhere are going to, into that market of Captagon to make it global. Is this something that... I haven't heard that. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me because it is. it was happening in, in down in Iraq. Yeah. Right? ISIS was involved in yeah, selling yeah. it, making a ton of money. And it's all about the money, Joe. So if it can make them some money, yeah, and they're a, they're a multi-billion dollar enterprise, right? They operate like a Fortune 500 company. So if they have a new product that they could sell, absolutely, I don't doubt it. I just haven't heard it because I'm very focused on fentanyl right now. Yeah, no, and fentanyl's really the number one killer in the United States when it comes to drugs. Um, Derek, it's always good to have you. It's always great to see you. Uh, we're going to basically put a link to your social media accounts, uh, especially your YouTube account, because I think, and I, I was telling this to uh, uh, on a different podcast that we recorded, that basically today's day and age, the the youth, they really don't want to read. They want to listen. They want to hear. They want to see. Uh, videos is kind of the way to go, right? right. And, and I think you're, you're on all the networks and we see you on TV, but we want to make sure that you have the channel, right. that you have your own audience that so you can grow on, exactly. On. So one of the things that I've been challenging myself and I've been failing miserably is that I'm trying to get, I'm trying to recruit influencers, role models, professional athletes, celebrities to step up because most of those people in those classes, if they understood this issue, they'd want to save some lives, right? Yeah. The problem is, Joe, it's the drug stigma attached to it. These are not drugs. These are poisonous chemicals yeah, made yeah. in the labs. And the problem is, because people are smoking pot out there, they don't want to be attached to it, so they avoid it. Meanwhile, kids are dying all yeah, over the place. You got to find a way to separate the narrative of marijuana. Yeah, exactly. From what we're talking about right, right here, which and, is and speaking of marijuana, not that I'm I'm trying to spread this, but there has been some deaths in America with fentanyl in the marijuana. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And that, that's not uh, something that I personally think is like prevalent all yeah. over. I think it was kind of probably an anomaly, maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. I hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. But I mean, I'm That's not all here. they got to do is yeah. put it, they're going to put in cheeseburgers next. Yeah, I'm not, gonna... listen, I'm not here to spread yeah. that rumor, but yeah. I will say that it's real what's happening. Yeah, yeah, Talk yeah. to the families. Absolutely. Derek, it's always great to have you. Uh, we're going to invite you again, probably in 2023. And hopefully we have some different type of policies that are going to change. I know we're having elections here, you know, they're going to have new policymakers and they're going to need another voice. They're going to need someone to educate them. Uh, a lot of them are actually coming from uh, southern, southern Texas. I don't know yeah. you heard about the, the, some uh, yep, of the pictures. Yep. Yeah, so new congressmen that are coming in and new policymakers. So keep doing what you're doing. We're going to continue to back you. Uh, if you want to follow Derek, you want to you need to plug your social media or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, look, Derek Maltz underscore senior on the Twitter. Okay. YouTube is Derek Maltz D E R E K M L T Z. I have a Facebook National Security Public Safety page that right. I post everything. I, I just try. I'm on you have Getter. A website? I don't have a website. Okay. I probably should have one, but I don't. <laughs> all right. I'm trying to keep up with all this madness, but my main goal is to get the awareness for the families. Okay, so we'll link all that. All that will be in the chat. Uh, so if you're new to the podcast or if you like this podcast, be sure you hit the like button. Be sure to share the podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and Spotify, wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. Derek, it's good to see you, my man. Thank you, buddy. Always good Appreciate to see you. it. And uh, for the rest of you, uh, let's uh, connect the next time and be sure to, sh uh, actually, I'm going to do something. If you like this podcast, you know, Derek's one of the best at understanding not just fentanyl, but just the overall problem that we're ch challenged that the United States has with daily drugs. If you give at least 200 likes to this video, we will have Derek 
come and explain to us a little bit more. And hopefully after the elections, because I want to get your read on what's happening with the Congress. Because yeah. that's, I feel, what you said exactly, like, I think, you know, the families are waking up, the families are organizing, but our policymakers are being a little slow on the clip on this. You know, they're, they're, Absolutely. They're, you, know you got that one uh, bipartisan, is it resolution? Yeah, resolution. Yeah, yeah. With, with the two congressmen, but that, that's a good start. But I feel like if if we get more people on board in among our policy, maybe not just even federal, maybe even state policymakers, to look at this, we, uh, we might be able to get uh, much more action done. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, Joe. I mean, I testified in Ohio court. I mean, sorry, Ohio Congress okay. in 2018 with Sarah Carter. We had an, an unanimous, unanimous bipartisan vote in the House and Senate in Ohio to declare the Mexican cartels as terrorists. Oh, that's interesting. But unfortunately, they don't have the power to do it. No, no, the State Department had to do it. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to tell you one last thing. I promise I keep saying <laughs> one last thing. This is important. We did that during the Trump administration. And Bill Barr ultimately became the attorney general. Isn't it interesting now that he's out of the job and he's talking a lot in the media? And what is he saying now? The cartels are operating like ISIS. They needed to be treated. They need to be treated like ISIS. We can't go after them with the criminal investigative approach. It's not working. Like he didn't do it <laughs> when he was there. Yeah. He, we, we didn't see this action. You know, so I, I don't I know. See, I see that a lot. Actually, I see that. I, see I a don't lot of times when, when people are in positions of power, they don't do what they think they should do. And then they get out and they say, well, I didn't do it then because the circumstances, but the, yeah, yeah. yeah it's no, the politics is the politics is the politics. So but you stay out of the politics. Cause you've always been just straightforward with your message. And we thank you for it there. Thank you again. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Subscribe to the border wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.